this for me is kind of like pick your brain session, bit of a what's it like to be in your head. That's the territory I'm trying to mine here. Conversation with, with meaning, I would say. I, I do find, it, I'm sure you've heard the expression, talking about music is like dancing about architecture, <laughs> which I'm sure you're familiar with, in that I've always found there's no there's no formula to for arriving where you want to go. You, I always stumble upon it, mm. and if I try to analyze how we how I got somewhere and try to do it again, it never works. And it's a sort of constant fumbling in the dark <laughs> that seems to. I mean, it's a, m a little more structured now in terms of writing and arriving at songs. It has to be. My life has changed a lot in the last fifteen years since I started writing. So, I had to sort of. I have to sort of com compartmentalize, I suppose, and go. I'm going to write now and sit in an empty room and stare out the window and mm. at a blank page and until something happens. But it is a fascinating process and also a maddening one. That certainly I found that this. There's no sort of sure way of making it happen, other than actually putting in the time. Right. Um, Could I wind the clock back a little bit? And, and you know, I was thinking, trying to get some kind of linear narrative to your transition into a professional musician, let's say. You started off playing drums in a band when you were at Justine in college? Well, I started playing flute in a concert band. Okay. The Lucan Concert Band. Second flautist. Second comes right after first. As Buzz Aldrin may have said, and yeah, so it was like in primary school, it was like nine or ten, and the concert band started in the school, and all of us sort of played recorder, and some of us decided to stay on and pick up another instrument. And I tried the trombone, which was deemed too big and awkward, and uh, then the flute, which I took to, and then I never really, I never really had a fire about it. I never really loved. It, it, practicing was a pain in the arse. And I had to be really pushed, and I wasn't—I wasn't that good. But one day, a drummer came in, and it was in the school gymnasium. And so, it, I mean, it was a bit of a cacophonous noise at the best of times. But when the drummer came in, it was like this—this this amazing. I, I remember when it was drum kit, so an older guy who had sort of been drafted into. To, to augment the band, and he started playing Kit, and I remember I, 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 I couldn't play flute while he was playing, I was so excited, I was like giggling, and from then on I sort of had to stay behind after band practice and play, you know, try and play the drums, and, mm -hmm. and then sort of transitioned from flute to percussion. But so I learned it formally, like did, proper, did drum lessons, and did, could read music at that point as well, so I did Glockenspiel and timpani, which were great fun, and triangle at times. Um, and I suppose from then is where my real love of music sprung and, and rhythm and sort of cross rhythms and, and the idea of a, of a percussion section, not just a kit, and even sort of dividing the kit into its component parts, which you know, sometimes you play a bass drum or a snare drum or orchestral crash cymbals. So. And then in school, I started. It was like something out of a sort of American teen movie. We started a band and there was like this fifth year, it was in fifth year, there was like a resource area where we had lockers and I would play drums on the lockers, sort of kneeing, <laughs> kneeing, kneeing the lockers. 
for the kick drum and sort of, you know, pound them and sort of groove and then people would sort of break into song and stuff. It was like fame. <laughs> and a few of us joined the folk group, Damien Rice among, among us and Brian Crosby and Dominic Phillips and we all went on to form Juniper at the time. We were still in school, sixth year and wrote some songs for our final year, our, our sort of graduation mass, I remember. There was a rap. <laughs> there was a rap by, by a guy called Colin Bell, who was, to this day, is quite a sort of free thinker and, and uh, has always chosen the less traveled path. And it was quite a, I there was a bit of a controversy at the time because it was like questioning the existence of God and questioning sort of the constructs around sort of organized religion and the fact that we were in a, a Catholic school and what the hell was that about? That the, the church had, you know, control of, pretty much control of the education system, which sort of stuck with me to, to this day. And, and I remember there being this sort of big hoo-ha about it and certain lines had to be taken out before it was performed. And, mm -hmm. and then Juniper started gigging again in an American teen way at like house parties and 18th birthday parties. And, we did a few gigs for Troker on the streets of Dublin around the 24-hour fast. Probably our first sort of public gigs. So I, and I was the drummer in the band. There were three of us at that point who, Dave Garrity had joined at that point as well. So he and myself and Damien were writing songs and sort of, uh, you know, Damien being the, main, the, the lead singer, he would have contributed most of the writing. and. But there were we sort of we swapped around a lot, and I'd, I'd jump out from the kit occasionally and sing, and but so there were all, a lot of the awkward silences at gigs and sort of clambering <clears> out <throat> from drum kits on tiny stages. But it was definitely at the time, you know, in that like leaving school time and, and sort of starting college that was I suppose most on fire about music and that real formative sort of period of discovery and of falling in love with music and certain albums meaning so much and the act of sort of buying a record and taking it home and lying on the floor in the dark and blaring it on the stereo and stuff. I mean, I, I never do that anymore, really, listening to music while doing nothing else. Um, taking a, an album to bed on my Walkman, like R.E.M.'s Green was a, was a big album for me that sort of really fell in love with certain albums and the idea of songs and what power they have and as a medium how much for me it's always been the most powerful uh, art form and how it communicates at a sort of more fundamental uh, level of our humanity than, than words alone.
I was 16, 17 at the time, and we going to sort of early gigs, like my first gig was seeing the Hothouse Flowers, I think, in, in the RDS, or yeah. And then seeing seeing you two a few times around then as well, seeing the Octon Baby tour and um, the Pop tour, and um, and then I suppose later getting into you know bands like Radiohead and you know as as we progressed as a band and sort of getting into gear and what what they were playing. I remember seeing them in Galway at this at the outdoor gig in Galway, and sort of one of us had a pair of binoculars. You know, kind of before they came on, we were checking out the gear and the amps they were using and Johnny's. You could see Johnny's effects behind him, and he was sort of like taking mental notes of what they were using, and um, and it sort of get, it gets a bit sort of beard strokey, and you're looking at the PA. Then you know, as you kind of progress as a, as a gigging musician, you're sort of more more aware of the sausage machine factor. You know, you, I love sausages, but I don't really know want to know what's in them. <laughs> you know, so you sort of get to see the sort of possibly more sort of hum, humdrum or to a lot of people putting together stuff is work and you know crew are great but it's often it's a bit they look pissed off and they sort of have a bit of a vibe about them yeah. <laughs> where you where, where <clears throat> as a music lover you, all you see is the performance and the, and the magic and the the communication and the soul to soul stuff so it does get a bit sort of diluted that 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 element of it does does get a bit diluted as you as you sort of start doing it yourself it it doesn't get less potent. I, I still love music and I still love going to gigs, but it it's, it becomes a different thing. I'd hate to become sort of jaded by it or or sort of see it as just a sort of social activity where you go and uh, as a night out as such. But um, I hear what you're saying about being part of a band and stuff. But <clears> there was a point where that band split up and, yeah. and you reformed in your current incarnation as yeah. Max One. And through either democratic vote or, or or another process, you were the designated front man of that band and the lead singer and principal songwriter to a certain yeah. degree. Yeah. Um, how was that transition for you? Like, did, was it something you, you know, embraced easily, or was it kind of a crisis uh, within your own self that maybe I can't do this? Or were, were you always confident? About your your you know your inherent talents or your skills to, to pull this off. I think I had I definitely had doubts. I, I was very excited about the prospect. I remember when the band broke up and the sort of four of us who reformed as Bell X One had a sort of meeting in the pub. I remember in in Selbridge and uh, we said what what the Jesus are we going to do and sort of decided then that. We wanted to, to be a band and, and uh, wanted to go ahead and at that meeting I suppose it was decided that I'd be the singer and you know from play, from playing drums live to stepping out I did feel self-conscious and vulnerable and awkward and what do I do with my hands sort of thing and but I think I always I felt that the band were a proper band in the sense that we were sort of as a, we were more than the sum of our parts. There was a, there was a sort of greater thing going on when we when we made noise together. And also myself as a as a songwriter, I, I did I felt confident and I felt really excited by sort of bringing songs to the group and having us sort of fashion them because I, I saw my own abilities as being greatly sort of augmented by. 
you know, bringing them into that sort of forum. We've always written co- collaboratively to, to an extent, you know, somebody would bring a song in its bare bones form and we'd finish them together, we'd dress them together and we, or we'd even sort of write, quarterly write different bits of the songs or, you know, uh, lyrically sort of push things in a certain direction. It's a very exposed, I suppose, process and people you make music with are often the people who see you at your most vulnerable or naked in, 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 in the sense that you're, as a songwriter, you do, I mean, certain songs can really cut to the bone of who you are. I mean, certain songs are pieces of theatre and, and I think for me they've become increasingly so as I've sort of exhausted the interesting bits of my life and tried to sort of channel bits of others but do you find like at, at a certain point in that process of the collaboration process that the song itself takes on a, a, a character of its own almost and that you've as the creator of it you gave birth to it but then it now becomes an entity in itself and your role as a as a musician or an artist is to shape that thing into a coherent sustainable yeah. <laughs> life force you know yeah and, and the yeah. most rewarding thing is when I find is when you bring something and it changes completely it, it, it becomes something that you've never that you hadn't thought of or you, that it's unrecognizable from its beginnings in, in a good way I mean sometimes you sort of it, it goes a certain way and you have to sort of you let it go you let it go you let it go let it go and then as the sort of songwriter you go no this is wrong this is <laughs> this is a bum steer and let's row back I'm very much in the in the sort of bear pit of of sort of dreaming it all up again. We're making a new record at the moment, so this stuff is very present to me now. This 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 process, and we're sort of self-producing in a way that, to to an extent that we've sort of never done before as well. So it's and with guys that you know for ten, fifteen, twenty years, you know you you develop your own little ticks, and there's a certain familiar contempt <laughs> that kicks in where you sort of oh you're sort of needling when each other and not really consciously but you're sort of in the way that you do with your family mm. um, you sort of know people's pressure points and you know childish sort of behaviour goes on where you're you just want your way and you know the sort of manipulations that can tend to get you there and everyone is sort of dance politely sometimes dancing around that and then sometimes it sort of reaches a point where nobody's polite anymore and you start shouting about it but I think all that is you know we've been we've, we've had a couple of times now where the basic tracks of a song might might go down where we perform the song as the three of us and so there's some sort of music and, and, and a vocal and then you'd start start dressing it that's the sort of point at which the the aesthetic palette gets more defined I find and, and then so somebody put down like I say a keyboard overdub or, or 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 even a hand clap and then there was a very contentious hand clap recently where one man's stock ache and Waterman <laughs> is another man's gold you know like the references and the sort of cultural touchstones that we use to describe certain colors or palettes or feelings that something as simple as a hand clap are, are very interesting and sort of mine, you know, can, can, can dig 
through all kinds of sort of elements of somebody's journey. It's by sort of going through lots of these decisions that the tone or the smell or the bang off a record is defined. Between the phone calls and text messages, yeah, must be thick with words, but not between us. you've spent most of your career as a musician collaborating almost with other people and that as you were saying you give birth to the original day and then you pass it on to those you partner with your own kind of relationship with the song then are you okay to say look as you're saying you're happy that sometimes that that song becomes something else yeah how does that work then with with lyrics because I've almost a separate question here is as you know as a writer you're imparting a very personal take on your worldview be it you're either channeling a, a story um, your own personal life experience whatever does that ever become a source of contention um, with people you collaborate with or do you have executive decision in the same way as like you're happy to let the music become something different are you the same with lyrics then or is that lyrics is more of my own domain actually again this time I think I have form in writing occasional lyric that will jar or sort of jump out as sort of attention seeking or silly or in some way offensive or <laughs> so yeah, it, the boys will pull me up on that more so now than they used to, which has actually been good because I can sometimes throw stuff in for sort of comic relief or what I perceive as a hilarity that just don't last. And my argument often with lyrics is that I don't want them to be just vanilla and, you know, as a sort of a top line that sort of passes without notice and is part of the bigger picture. I'd, I've always been a fan of lyrics that mean something or that have a sort of uh, narrative or something have are the basis of the connection with somebody or with you know. So, but I I, I hold my hands up and I, I have sort of offended at times and I offended in the sense of you know that's just silly or that takes from the song. There's one lyric that made it through uh, from a few records back, a song called One Stringed Harp, which goes, uh, uh, you're just picking your knickers from your arse like you're playing a one-stringed harp. And that's the chorus, so that gets sung several times. Again, I think it's a funny image, and most people probably would agree, but in a song that sort of forms the basis of a of course, it's probably, it's sort of just, it left a sort of a bad taste and uh, has been the one that people refer to all the time when they sort of say, that's not good. Blank page syndrome, um, where do you go 
in your mind or in your creative mind when you're starting that process? Is it your observations? Your, are you keeping notes? Are you, you know, conjuring stories? Are you piecing other bits together? What's the journey of a song or a lyric within a song? Do you make up characters? Do you rob from life experience? Like, where does that start? Like, all of the above, I yeah. would say. I, I do have stickies on my phone, and I'm, uh, I have uh, voice recordings where I might wake in the middle of the night and grab my phone and you know, sing something or mumble something to the phone. Um, and often these single lines or or images or topics will form the basis of, of songs. And yeah, I think the writing has become a little less about me and more uh, observations or things I feel. I, I do love the idea of communicating, and I, I find it very rewarding when people. Are feeling it too, or that you're sort of touching a nerve in saying something, or communicating something, or noting something that that chime with people. Um, and it doesn't have to be ly lyrically either. I mean, there's the often there's when lyrics and music synchronize or or, or combine in a, in a way that that chimes uh, creates a, a really effective. Um, a powerful thing, you know, especially live when you sort of you look out and you see that you've achieved what you set out to, and that's the greatest mm. sort of payback. And uh, lyrics is sort of has become harder actually. I find I'm sort of constantly retouching or rewriting bits of lyric that I'm not quite happy with, or sort of will have oceans of verses that get whittled down to three or four and you've mentioned before about certain interpretations of songs and I've asked you on previous occasions about the meaning of a song and sometimes I like to kind of know the meaning you know where's yeah. the motivation and, and you've said that it's open to interpretation it's a stream of consciousness do you try and tap into a universal truth within life experience or like I, if I was to summarize a lot of your the themes of the lyrics you write would be these moments in your everyday experience and the, the kind of royal family model of of looking at the world where drama unfolds within the everyday. Sorry, royal is an oral. Oral by Ali. Yes, okay. excuse me for those listeners. <laughs> it's a TV show, um, but you know it's it's the ultimate show about nothing happens. But once you get past that conceit, there's everything is happening, you know, all of the dramas unfolding in the little details, the look of one character to another, the way they drink their tea or whatever. I think, would I be right in saying that you, you mine a lot of that territory as, as a, an observer rather than the big thematic global areas that you, you're, you seem to be more comfortable in the, in the mundane day-to-day existence and that's, that's where real life takes place. Yeah, I think I have been more so than I think I've expanded with, again, we're sort of in the middle of making a record, so I'm trying to, I'm thinking of the, the, the themes at play, and there's sort of bigger, I mean, I, 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 I find I do, I, I, I can, I can mind those sort of 
beauty in the or or or, or certain interesting facets of 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 the mundane, but also. You know, I've written a lot about Ireland and its change, its its metamorphosis in, in, in certainly my lifetime and our lifetimes that where we've seen, you know, I think the the country we live in now is unrecognizable from you know, the late seventies when when we arrived and uh, I think the first two records were probably quite personal and from the second from the third one on have become more sort of outward looking. Um, and when I think about sort of songs that are kicking around now, there's a a song about Syria. I, I like to take sort of little when I read or or hear of little sort of nuggets of very human moments that speak to a, something bigger. Like I read about um, the uprising in Syria sort of started. There was people seem to be given courage by events in other countries in the region and uh, graffiti started appearing in Syria that said you're next doc which was a reference to uh, Assad as a doctor he, he was I think known as the doctor and the the graffiti was a reference to you know you're next to take you know the chop or to, to be <coughs> overthrown um, and the brutal of of people there has, has been you know quite staggering and it's something that we, we have no idea what people go through you know in these in, in those parts of the world um, also a, a song about the tussle between Edison and Tesla at the beginnings of electricity and sort of generation of electricity and its distribution in, in North America and how one of them favored AC and one of them favoured DC and it's actually it was seeing an episode of a, an online series called Drunk History and these guys they, they, they get an academic really drunk and get them to talk about a subject that's close to their heart and, and this guy talks very passionately about about Tesla as, as the sort of tragic put down hero of the of the piece and Edison as this sort of boorish, arrogant, uh, ugly character where, and Tesla, you know, dies this very undignified death, having, having sort of never been recognised for his brilliance in his lifetime. Bringing the conversation back towards your role as a musician and the service you provide to both your audience and you know in a live context and producing records, like if you look at the kind of graph, you, you exist maybe uniquely or a musician and and maybe a couple of other categories of the arts where um, the role of the critic can make or break a band, and then you know certain bands despite critical acclaim or, or, or the opposite, go on to succeed and, and, you know, please their audience. How do you regard the role of a critic 
on one end kind of lauding over what you do um, maybe influencing potentially how you write what you do just the general role of a critic and then the end user the people who consume your product how does that influence how you go about doing your job do you have to quieten those voices or do you take in consideration do you know what that's not going to go down with our audience we may isolate our core audience or this is really playing to the critics or whatever you know what I'm trying to get out here yeah. it's like do critics or your fans influence how you write music I'm sure they do in, in sort of ways I'm probably not totally conscious about I, mean, I do have a weak spot for reviews and for, for reading reviews of our work and uh, I'd, I'd sort of would love not to <laughs> because I'm, I'm really bothered by bad reviews and I'm really buoyed by good ones and I sort of now will sometimes read reviews or sort of read sort of music journalism and go be sort of gladdened if somebody gets a bad review or sort of <laughs> take pleasure in, in sort of someone getting an equally bad review as we did once or something, you know, that sort of very perverse and wrong but ultimately human instinct to uh, to sort of wish the worst for your comrades. It's 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 not a good look. But I don't. We don't write, or I don't write with that in mind. It's it's a it's a sort of after the fact consideration. I I think. I mean, the, the making records. You're always, you know. There is this sort of. The dance between art and commerce and it often comes to the fore when you make a record and you go you you know you, you've sort of put your blood sweat and tears into the thing and you know every nuance and every sort of the journey of each song has had a sort of has left an imprint and you sort of play it for someone or you play it for the label and they often will go, where's the single? <laughs> and that jaded old idea of, of, of where's the single. And I, I, you know, I, I think it's still, the fact is that records, certainly our experience has been that records need songs that play the role of a single, get on the radio or, or, or get passed around, you know, by people online or get some sort of notice somewhere so often we've had to kind of go back and go oh Christ let's come up with a single and that can leave a really bad taste or it has done in the past I think we've become more conscious of sort of needing for there to be songs that have that sort of immediacy uh, in order to sort of reel people in because uh, I think the stuff that's closer to our hearts are the growers are the songs that have a little more subtlety and, and nuance and uh, delicacy to them and that wouldn't necessarily sort of be uh, attention grabbing on a radio at first listen but I th we, we recognize the need to have things that are you know that, that tick the box of the role of a single you've been in a band for nearly what 20 years now Oh, Jesus. And yeah. Jesus. Yeah. You've 
being around, it's the, this is the middle-aged man section of this conversation. <laughs> but, um, but you know, you have uh, uniquely been. You're still operating as a functional band who make music and play live, and you've been doing that for fifteen plus years, maybe twenty. Um, so it's pre, safety. pre and post internet, the the landscape of how music is listened to, bought, promoted, played live has dramatically changed in that period. What's your observations of that that transition over the last, let's say, five years? The Web 2.0 paradigm. How has that affected trade? Has affected what you do? Is it a curse, a blessing? I think it's been a great thing for music generally. People talk about it cheapening music and the fact that you can get anything you want for free now if you want to. It's all out there. Uh, you know, and I mentioned earlier about the, the act of sort of buying a record with great excitement and taking it home and listening to it while doing nothing else and following its journey as, as the artist wanted you to, you know, in terms of the running order and stuff, and that's not how people consume music anymore. Uh, I'm not saying it's, it, it's, it's worse, but the idea of sort of creating a coherent body of work as an album isn't, doesn't, isn't as important anymore. And, you know, it's, the single has become more important in that sense, in terms of bringing people to the party. I mean, technology generally has been a really empowering thing for musicians in terms of people who can make their own records now on their laptops and in kitchens and garages and very easily. And it's really demystified the process. You don't have to go to a studio that has loads of intimidating gear and, and protocol and coffee that's far too strong. You know, you can... Um, do it at home, and I, and I know with like, you know, people starting bands now. That's as much part of the journey as as learning as sort of playing guitar, or playing drums, as having a computer and knowing how to use Pro Tools or Logic or one of these. I think that's a great thing. So that's it's as important in making the art as playing an instrument is 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 the recording. I think. Um, because you know the the recording process or the studio is is uh, is is an instrument in some ways or can be in in, mm -hmm. in how you sort of shape things sonically and you know how they glue together and how they how they ultimately speak and communicate and sort of have you know what we're trying to do is is have an emotional impact and you know the the constituents parts of the song need to be put together in a way that 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 does that and. But in terms of how music is, is put out there and consumed, uh, I think ultimately it's been very empowering in, in the sense that you can make your record very easily and you can also put it out very easily. Um, you still need to get it to people's ears and that's the sort of more old school uh, network is still, or the, 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 the forces that make that happen are still as per the gatekeepers, old, the gatekeepers mm -hmm. I suppose. Well, I think they're, they're they're shifting as well. I think in terms of getting 
your record on radio or getting it to the bloggers that will write about it and generate interest and and be the sort of yaysayers that were, were you know people will follow their lead um, and how we see say the streaming thing you know the, the major labels are major shareholders and the likes of Spotify so they've you know the it's, it's follow the money you know the money will still dictate the, the, the major players have, have morphed seem to have sort of found a way to change and morph and sort of still retain control of of uh, of of how people consume the music um, I don't see streaming as as killing music or it's ultimately how things have developed and and it's here to stay and it, and, and needs to be engaged with and, and not sort of pulling your catalog off off streaming services I, I I really don't see the point in that. And do you find it's becoming increasingly more difficult to sustain, you know, a living as a musician, a working musician? Is that something you struggle with, or are you, you know, is it something you've reconciled that this is the journey, the path one yeah. has to walk, and you adapt accordingly? Well, you know, I've got a twenty-year-old uh, engineering degree that I can always fall back on, <laughs> you know, because nothing's changed in last 20 years and that um, I, it, I do I've got two kids now eldest is five and uh, four children uh, BC there was uh, I never really considered sort of how much I made or how much I needed or how much I spent it, it was you know it, what, since I've had kids I've definitely you know remember before we had our first child I definitely went through sort of serious provider anxiety where I was like I, I really need to I have no idea. Can I can I do this? Can I am I actually making a living, or uh, what do I need, and how much do we need to have, sort of sustain this life, or well, how much does the kid cost? <laughs> so, you know, it was very you know life changing in, in lots of ways, and I have made my peace with it since, and we've been very lucky to been able to do it for so long. And going back to the how the consumption of music and the the, the sort of the machine has changed so much. We had the good fortune of sort of riding the the final sort of big waves of sort of old school music record label deals where we, we were on a major label for a couple of records and, you know, built up an audience on partly because of their muscle. And then, you know, when we went and did our own thing and started putting out our own records, we still had that audience. Um, we'd have been established as a big band who got, you know, had songs on the radio and, you know, so we could sort of take that audience with us and retain control of our, of our records and how we put them out and sort of found sort of smaller par partners all over the world that we felt had a, had, had a similar fire to what we had about what we did and so it became a lot more sort of people to people and the audience really supported that and the sense of of being sort of intrinsically involved in a band's success and sustainability I suppose you know, people did feel invested in this because I think our music and and you know there's nothing that gives me greater sort of satisfaction than, than getting emails from people who 
talk about our music and its effect on them and its importance in their lives the same way as I would have felt about OEM's Green when I was mm-hmm. 16. You know, that that we are for them that band that they fell in love with music through. Um, I mean, it is harder to make a living now, to be honest, and I make less money now than I did a couple of years ago and have to get out there and gig more probably, um, which I'm lucky enough to really enjoy. But being on the major label for those few years, we never actually saw any money from record sales in the context of the discussion of, you know, record sales are way down, streaming and illegal downloading or what's happening now and you make far or less money from those revenue streams. Because we never made money from record sales anyway, it's made little difference. Um, so for us it's always been about sort of getting out there and getting in the van and you know, gigging to make a living. So it felt more tangibly like work, yeah. know, sort of heading down the mine. As all this crying subsides, but I'm like Columbus in India. Yeah, I'm a little all over the shop, like those holy souvenirs from Nock that come all the way from China. I'd want to miss the opportunity maybe just to ask you about your own you know personal development outside of your your role maybe as a as a working artist musician like you know you strike me as a contemplative man um a, a thinker but just picking on a, a theme that's come up in other conversations like is is what's what's going on with you in, in that respect you, you know, the the inner journey or the the quest for uh, meaning and understanding what's going on in the world and, and you know your relationship with your environment and and higher self yeah. let's say I, I think I'm a bit of a chancer I can often ignore or choose not to address the sort of bigger issues or the say the fact that I, I feel we're we're running the planet into the ground and no one really seems to give a shit or or at least there's little concerted effort to change human behaviour uh, to that end. I read a piece recently called Regrets of the Dying. It was written by a hospice worker. Uh, I found very affecting. Uh, biggest regret seems to have been that people weren't more true to themselves and listen to their voices that would have encouraged them to sort of be more brave about the choices they made in life or the sort of the interactions they had and to be less sort of appeasing and choosing the sort of easier path. Do you feel you're you're walking that path? No, not not yet, but I, I do find myself in difficult moments or in that I'm feeling very daunted about or I'm feeling very sort of um, vulnerable or self-conscious or if I'm about to walk on stage in an environment that I'm not particularly comfortable in or, or I feel like 
this could go very wrong or this or the idea of making a fool of yourself is a sort of ridiculous one because ultimately on our deathbeds do we, we that that is not important that that what is important is that we we try to give voice to these instruments of our humanity and extend ourselves and in in the instance of of performing that that trying to make those sort of connections soul to soul connections um, and not worry about the sort of window dressing of it or what do I say or the fear of failure of not being able to sort of hold a room but also in a sort of you know outside of performing the sort of I've always been conflict averse. I, I I don't like conflict. I don't like saying things to people that I feel I I, I should, uh, and that are pulling people up on their behaviour or standing up for something that I should uh, in 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 seeing a wrong and and wanting to make it right, or at least make an effort to do so, and and often will will shirk from that responsibility. I've always had a fear of sort of random street violence or being a victim of it or you know and and I think often think of what would I do in a situation where you see somebody being attacked on the street or seeing a man attacking a woman on the street and I think your responsibility as a human is to intervene and whether I'd have the balls to uh, I would hope I would and I, I think that I often quote that example in, in terms of what I see as our responsibility in a sort of global sense that, you know, these the idea of intervening in somebody else's country to say stop uh, a tyrannical government terrorizing its own people. I think the international community does have a responsibility to intervene. I know there's an awful lot of other agendas at play in these instances and uh, it's often ultimately had outcomes for the worse. But I think that that analogy is relevant of walking down the street and seeing somebody being attacked in a in in that sort of scenario is is like looking to another country where wrong is being perpetrated, people are being persecuted. I think that we as humans have a responsibility to address that. So you, you seem to have um, a very strong moral conscience. Would uh, be fair to say. I don't always listen to it, or I, I, again, it's one of these things I can sort of shut off and think about. Oh, oh what am I doing this weekend? Uh, oh, we have to do this and go to the zoo, and uh, I'm going to make a creme brulee, and you know, <laughs> you get sort of easily distracted. I'm I'm just curious because I, I I struggle with this myself. You know, that inner voice needs to be you know integrated. I think into your your own psyche, your own uh, how you interact with. The world, and, and I often find the more I kind of explore, you know, self-development and uh, self-actualization or whatever, I, I find the applying concepts externally that for me seems where there's a disconnect, where I, I need to have that relationship integrated in my own self first. I think before I can yeah. be authentic, and that's one of the kind of failures in my own application of it whereas I, I like you I've, I've I've a heightened kind of moral 
justice antenna where I see wrongs in the world and I get very frustrated and I feel very um, disenfranchised with greater society as it operates or whatever. And how I try and reconcile it is just to try and live that moral truth in my own day-to-day -day existence, you know. Well, I've been righteous and pious about, you know. I, I don't know, is that something you try and do? Like, do you... I hope Because so. I think it all, it all comes back to how your total conduct as a human, your everyday interaction, like, there's no point in having a, high, a heightened sense of moral justice and social justice and then being a bollocks to, you know, somebody in a shop when you're buying the newspaper or whatever, you know. Yeah. I, I think, for me, it's more about how you interact on one-on-one -on -one basis. Is is really how you change the world for the better? You know, yeah. is that something you would? Uh, yeah, and I can be a dick in various scenarios. I know that, and um, that these sort of high-minded ideas can, you know, be fine to be verbalised and sort of go on to the next thing. dinner party yeah. conversation. Yeah. Or, yeah. But, I've also become sort of really interested in the idea of government, and I know you feel quite disenfranchised by that, but, but the idea that, that a government should be formed through the idea of people getting together and deciding how best to ensure the best quality of life for everybody. Uh, and how do we do that? We put sort of structures in place where we, uh, we have something called education, we have we build roads, we have a healthcare system, we um, have some sort of uh, justice system and, and the idea that, so how, do, how best do we do this? Okay, we'll elect representatives to make it happen and so they can delegate to, you know, they can make it happen and so we as citizens don't have to think about it because we've delegated our responsibilities but we should be invested in in that process and feel in some way involved and that, that we have some sort of say in continuing say in how it's done. People feel very uh, detached from government and feel like it's a sort of uh, oppressive third party that's making you do stuff and taking your money and it's this sort of there's no sense of involvement that you're actually you're one of many voices that that has created this that you know that there is a that there is a sort of a shared social responsibility that it's become very very removed from that idea and I would love to get back to that somehow mm. I know that's sort of a socialist sort of thing and I suppose in, in a lot of ways would be um, although my although my wife tells me I'm getting a lot more right right wing. <laughs> <laughs> As I get a right wing left slash. Yeah, I don't think I am though, but she'll probably um, have other views on it. And also the idea that that the background into which you're born is a is a lottery. Some people are born into very unfair backgrounds. Uh, you know, I'm in favour of somehow redistributing wealth. Um, I'm in favour of, of the welfare state. Of the idea that the state should be a provider of certain. Uh, Necessities, uh, healthcare, education. Uh, yeah. I won't come back to argue the opposite because I've just done that in another conversation yeah. and, and my audience are just going to be bored listening to me <laughs> speak about philosophical anarchy. <laughs>
I like what you were saying about music having this transformative quality to it, that it transcends time, space, identity. Um, I know you spoke about Green, Rory Emms' record, and I have the same relationship with The Unforgettable Fire. Okay. <laughs> it has this kind of effect on me that, that within five seconds of listening to Sword of Homecoming... And you know it's time to go... I'm in 1984. <laughs> I'm, it's a time machine. Yeah? You yes, I'm talking about that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's like I am 15 again. This is remarkable. Your music, again, has far more, for me yeah. anyway, than any other art form has the power to, to drag you back to certain mm. times in your life. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, your own creations, like, uh, what stands out for you? regardless of critical acclaim or your popular songs, but what are the two, just pick one song actually, for the sake of this conversation, that has that effect on you, that brings you somewhere, that transforms your world. Uh, there's a song called God Song from our first album that I, I played again recently. That's why I, I think of it and as in performed it. Um, that hadn't in, in, in a long time, and it and it it had bizarrely, it, it, you know, it it was. I know it's my song, but it had that same effect of sort of. It was on our first record, so it came out in two thousand. I remember it. It opens with this conceit that there's that there's a sort of fat cat's dinner party or or a reception of some kind or the. They've all dined lavishly, and there's an after-dinner speaker. The after-dinner speaker is God, and uh, I remember thinking of that sort of. I remember the the where the, the space where I was when I wrote, when I sort of thought of that conceit and sort of wrote it, and the song sort of sprung from that idea. And uh, and and it turns out that God really wasn't so omnipotent after all. He didn't really sort of wing in it. <laughs> didn't really know more than you know anyone else and uh, so the, the chorus went something like hear my song I'm always right but what if I'm wrong uh, so it, it yeah it, it was one of those songs that that had a similar effect to listening to Orange Crush or something would have had Just like listen to you speak about your yeah, songs, uh, like I think I mean one of our best known songs is probably Eve, the Apple of My Eye, which uh, I, I wrote when a, a girlfriend of mine left for travel for quite some time, and uh, it was sort of written with the sort of unselfconscious abandon that I couldn't really write with now. It has a certain sort of to me now, sort of overwrought 
angst, which I was feeling at the time. Uh, but I don't relate to that person so much anymore that wrote the song. Uh, I think life's more complicated than that. Accept it Don't let it Turn the screw Accept it And let it Often when I write quite sort of emotive things now, I sort of row back, okay, I row back with certain lines. The potential sort of overwroughtness is tempered by somewhat sort of a little more nuance or humour or bizarreness that are more in touch with who I am now. It's hard to. I'd feel a bit insincere about writing a, another song like "Eve the Apple of My Eye." Um, have there been any songs that have surprised you, with you know the reaction from your audience? Because I haven't even asked you about playing live and and that the different context in which a song is listened to. You know, you have six albums now, or on the yeah. on your on your seventh. It's on the seventh. Yeah. Um, you know, and you have the studio version and then you have the live version. The transition from studio to playing live and then how that takes on a life of its own. What songs have surprised you as a band that, jeez, we didn't expect that song to kick off? Or do, yeah. you, do you, you know, do you dry run songs sometimes when you're writing? And Sometimes we have the luxury of that and some, sometimes not, as in sometimes we'd have new songs sort of worked up while touring an existing record, but um, more often than not, we we don't, and we sort of record the record and then go play it. Yeah, I mean, that's often uh, comes to light when you, after playing a song for a number of years, and then for some reason hearing the recording of it, and you go, Jesus, that's wildly different, I don't remember, that's mm -hmm. it's sort of had a journey, you know, from that starting point that, and often you go, oh, yeah, that was really good. Like I don't remember that part. That you know, maybe we should go back and sort of inject mm -hmm. elements of that. Because often I think songs can get a bit, get the nuance uh, diluted or that they're taken out, or that they become, in the worst cases, a little pub rocked. They can tend to lose some of their sort of more interesting elements, or mm -hmm. certain and sonically as well. I mean. When you go for quite specific sonic sonic palette, say like a big distorted drum or sort of very present percussion, they can it's hard to often hard to make those things happen live. Mm. So they can lose their what what there's a song called Rocky Took a Lover, which has a quite a sort of extreme palette in that sense. And if like if it's played sort of as a plain rock band, it can. It's a lot less interesting than sort of the, the the choices we made in the recordings were, you know, big drum, big distorted drums, big distorted bass, and sort of quite light acoustic guitar and mm. percussion. And so we were big fans of that 
album Soft Bulletin by the Flaming Lips at the time that had sort of that was their palette. But often sort of you know, you can't when you play live you can't shift the balance wildly from song to song. Mm. I mean there's some of that that does go on, but there has to be a sort of coherent sonic palette from you know, often we play songs from all six records, so it has to sort of make mm. sense and yeah, there's another there a couple of songs that have sort of taken on a life of their own in terms of big extended wig outs and which are great fun and uh, but don't really work on record. I, I find um, the sort of two drum kit drum off, <laughs> which can be great live. Okay, so uh, on that note, we'll call it a day. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Thank you, Jim. fireball from the sky Oh, will we all take to the bed Laid low by a new pox Oh, will the wrong guy get the codes Whose arms would I see Whose eyes would I meet in the final throes And say it was good to be human To be a human with you here Who